Manufacturing will be an important part of any attempt to rebalance, regrow, rethink our economy. To use hedge funds as the whipping boy for the crisis is just preposterous. It's like blaming fish for the flight of geese. I think the best way of tackling this is a much more realistic minimum wage, but also restoring trade union rights so that you know, people can be represented at work. The UK has already quite a vigorous uh, voluntary sector, but there should be scope for uh, a further expansion of what one might call a communitarian society. And of course, if you're holding down two or three jobs, it means you don't have any time for anything else. You don't have time for family life. Knocking at the same time. Welcome to 2020 Visions, a series that takes the long view looking at British political, social and cultural life over the next decade. This week we're looking at the world of work, exploring issues including wages, job creation and the future of public, private and voluntary work. We have contributions from Ken Livingston, running for Mayor of London, the Centre for Social Justice's Christian Guy, geographer and co-founder of the journal Soundings, Professor Doreen Massey, Chief Economist at the Think Tank Policy Exchange, Andrew Lillico, Deborah Littman from the trade union Unison, Rhys Moore, Head of the Living Wage Campaign at London Citizens, lifelong anarchist agitator Ian Bone, and Stuart MacDonald, the director of a hedge fund. To kick off, we spoke to Professor Doreen Massey at the OU about industry and geography in the UK. Hello, I'm Doreen Massey. I'm a geographer. Doreen, which areas of the country do you think that public sector job cuts will hit hardest? Oh, quite definitely. The regions outside London and the southeast, though always keeping as an exception there the poorer areas of London. The regions of the north and west have got a higher percentage of public sector jobs um, compared with London and the southeast in general. They're also poorer and therefore they're more dependent on public services. So they get it both ways. They lose the jobs and they'll lose the services. I think it's quite important to stress as well, because the way this is sometimes phrased is that, that those regions are dependent on the public sector because somehow they're a failure. And they're not a failure. Um, it's quite untrue that up there the public sector um, jobs have crowded out the private sector, which is the way it's usually put. The private sector has quite simply failed to invest in those regions, particularly during the last 30 years when the finance sector has been so dominant. So in a sense, the public sector in the regions of the North and West has been compensating for the utter failure of the private sector to get its act together. And also, since the 1980s, really, the whole of the British economy has been dominated by finance, and its kind of constellation of associated sectors. And they are all super concentrated in London and the southeast. And that dominance, both sectoral and geographical, has done harm to other parts of the economy and other regions of the country. 
in terms of, for instance, the, there's a battle between finance and, and manufacturing, for instance, over exchange rates. And finance is much more in favour of short-termism. Manufacturing needs long-considered investment. The city, capital C, in London has drawn in professional workers from the rest of the country. There's a way in which, in other words, the dominance of finance has made it much more difficult for other sectors to grow. It's been, there's a tree called the Upas tree, um, under which nothing else can grow. And in, in a way, the finance sector's been like that for the last 30 years in the British economy. Do you see that newly created jobs over the next decade will be situated in areas outside London? I think that's not a matter for prediction. It's going to be a matter of political struggle. If we carry on as we are, then no. Um, we w it seems that, for all their weasel words, the current coalition is not going to challenge, not seriously challenge the dominance of finance. And so we will continue to get this growth in the southeast, which robs the rest of the country to a certain extent. It's also going to be slashing back on public sector jobs. And of course, that cutback of public sector jobs also has effects on the private sector. So that will further undermine the employment within the private sector. But we've got a choice in front of us, I think. We have to challenge the dominance of finance within the British economy. It made the recession that we're now facing far worse than in other countries. But even when finance was apparently successful, it didn't grow us a sensible economy. The finance sector that we had did not invest in productive activity. It bought assets and speculated. And so it wasn't the basis for the creation of a broad-based economy, either sectorally or regionally. And we've got to challenge that. One of the advantages of, for instance, a more sustainable, a more green uh, economy and economic strategy that isn't often talked about, in fact, is that the, the kind of green army of jobs that the Green New Deal talks about would have to be based more generally about the country. It's very unlikely to be so concentrated in London and the southeast as the finance sector is, um, partly because a lot of the jobs will need to be near the population that they serve, jobs in recycling and repair, etc. And greening itself might entail us thinking about having a more locally based economy. This isn't something that we should predict. It's something that we need to have a political battle over. But the shape of the economy in sectoral terms, the politics of our economy, is reflected in the geography of the economy. And a greener and more sustainable economy would also be uh, potentially a more regionally equal economy. Do you see any hope that the UK could recreate its economic manufacturing base? Or will the economy continue to rely on other sectors to bring in investment? I think we've got a kind of terminological problem here, you know. I think we're beginning to realise that the distinction between manufacturing and service, it was always a bit dodgy, and now it's really breaking down because companies that call themselves manufacturing do an awful lot of servicing jobs. And sometimes they contract them out, sometimes they do them themselves, and it depends whether they do that or not, where these jobs get classified. I think we should stop thinking simply manufacturing. I'd prefer to think more broadly and more flexibly about jobs that are other than in finance and the finance constellation. And that opens up the field of potential jobs much more widely. We're not going to go back to an economy that's based on the kind of manufacturing that we've had in the past and the levels of employment 
in that kind of manufacturing that we've had in the past, uh, undoubtedly. But manufacturing will be an important part of any attempt to rebalance, regrow, rethink our economy. You know, we are still, by value, the sixth uh, largest manufacturing producer in, in the world. So it's not, manufacturing is not insignificant already in this economy. I think what's important is that we have what we used to call an industrial strategy, where industry means the whole economy, and that the government, but through democratic processes, has a strategic view of what the economy ought to be about. Now, effectively, since Thatcher, without saying so, that view has been, we will let finance do what it wants and we will provide for it to do so. So London and the South East actually has had a massive regional policy kind of aiding it to enable finance to have its way and to dominate the economy. What we need now is to have a political intervention which says, no, we want a different model of an economy from that in which non-financial sectors and other regions and London and the South East will play a bigger role. Now, what you get in response to that, obviously, is all the people that say, oh, you've got to leave it to the private sector, the market knows best, governments can't pick winners. And I have to say that a lot of that stuff is nonsense. It's just because it's repeated and repeated and repeated, people seem to believe it, but actually it's nonsense. As I said before, finance did not produce investment during the last 30 years into a productive economy. It only produced speculation in assets, whether it was SUVs or property or yachts or gold or what have you. It's also said that government can't pick winners. But actually, if we're going to think long term about this economy, and if we're going to think about new technologies, and especially if we're going to think about really radical and imaginative new technologies around a more sustainable form of economy, then what you need is very long-term investment that is prepared to take a hit in the early years that will not produce uh, high rates of profit very quickly. And the private sector won't do that. The private sector, the finance structure that we have at the moment is after short-term profit. The only agency that will really think long-term that will invest and stay committed to the development of new areas, new kinds of manufacturing, new kinds of services, is the government. And we need the government to take that kind of initiative. It's no good having lots of little schemes for tiny startup companies. That will do nothing. And a lot can be done also through regulations and incentives and a different kind of framework for the economy, which doesn't even cost much money. Can you point to any other economies around the world which have successfully implemented the policies you propose? Not overall, but you can point to different aspects of it in different places. Germany is a successful manufacturing exporter, and Germany is still the second biggest exporter after China in the whole world. There are One thing we haven't mentioned yet also is the democratisation of the economy. And there are plenty of places, plenty of countries, most especially at the moment in Latin America, where that is being tried. So there are serious attempts to produce a more cooperative economy where mutuals and cooperatives play a much bigger role, as well as state-owned companies and state intervention. There isn't a model. We're going to have to invent. But there are and have been around the world indications of different possibilities in different places. Even in this country, and up in the northeast, for instance, in Newcastle, there are new ways of thinking about experiments between the local authority and trades unions in, in 
rethinking what social services, public sector services might be about and how, how they can be more democratically organized. So what we, we have to look around and pick up bits that will suit us. I don't think one country can simply follow the model of, of others, but there are plenty of other, plenty of ideas around. What form will the UK job market take in 2020? Will the country continue to rely on the London-based financial service industry to support the economy? And can we really rely on the private sector to create jobs? The former Mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, talks about emerging industries, investment in the City of London and the future of public service. I'm Ken Livingstone, the once and future Mayor of London. After 30 years of the Thatcher-Reagan agenda, which wiped out our manufacturing and made over mighty banks, we've finally hit the wall and we've got to start to build a, an economy with a better range of jobs. A key area of growth is that we should be moving into making those new technologies that will tackle the problems of climate change. Not just, although there's a huge potential for it, um, photovoltaic cells and solar panels and wind farms, but the emerging technologies that are coming out of a lot of the research being done in London um, about how you get um, smart use of energy in the home with computer-controlled um, use of electronic gadgets and heating and ventilation and so on. And because climate change is going to be much worse, much quicker than people thought, there's a huge potential to create thousands of jobs in this in the future. So that's most probably the single biggest thing we could do, apart from modernising our infrastructure, so you know, building high-speed rail links so that people aren't using their cars all the time. And I mean, when I say as well, a shameful part of the old Labour government's record, um, we should start building um, houses for rent again. Um, the only way to tackle our housing crisis is to increase the supply. So um, um, uh, looking at all those things, you'd be talking about creating hundreds of thousands of new jobs over the next decade. I mean, London isn't becoming less attractive um, for public and private investment. The problem is that this government looks as though it's going to, I mean, it will go ahead with building the big new crossrail line, but after that, I mean, nothing else is going to be done. And given people find London so attractive, they're still moving here in large numbers, uh, you need to increase our infrastructure. And for every pound you spend on improving our transport system, the Treasury gets two to three pound back in extra taxation because it's you know, the most productive place in Britain to invest is in London. I mean, private investment has really taken a knock in this recession, and that happens in every recession. I think firms cut out first as investment, which is so short-sighted because by investing, you improve the efficiency of your firm, you win more work, you are more profitable in the future. But it's a classic sort of short-termist response. Um, and it's a problem in the American economy as well. Whereas if you look at our rivals, India and China, that are growing so strongly, China's increased its level of investment um, from 43 to 46% of GDP, whilst Britain and America have cut it from the high teens to the mid to low teens, so locking us into further relative decline. Yeah. Perhaps one of our biggest problems is the growing divide between people who've got secure jobs with a future and a pension and the increasing numbers that are in unstable, low-paid, insecure jobs, usually without a pension. And there's just no justification for this. I mean, effectively, I, you've seen a huge increase in inequality of wealth so that company chief executives and 
seniors have been massively increasing their pay, um, whilst impoverishing a lot of the people that work for them. And this just eventually means more problems with crime and drug addiction, broken families, which we all have to pay through through our taxes and, and through a reduced quality of life. So I think the best way of tackling this is a much more realistic minimum wage, but also restoring trade union rights so that you know, people can be represented at work. It's a scandal that Blair never did this and left workers vulnerable to exploitive and bullying bosses. Well, the one thing you can always be certain uh, about making predictions about changing work practice in the next 10 years is if we never get it right. I suppose you went back 15 or 20 years, people say we all be working from home. Some are, but more and more people are working in the centre of London than ever before. So there's, I mean, it's never quite clear. I, nobody anticipates, I mean, you can go back to the 60s, people didn't anticipate the growth of mobile phones and blackberries. I mean, I think the only place you're in a or anything like it was Star Trek with the old um, handheld communicators. People were looking and assuming ever faster travel and you know, some cities on the moon by now. The important thing, I think, is just to make sure you stay flexible so you can quickly snap up the new technologies and, and run with them out of your competitors. The simple fact here is that the division between the public and the private sector is a total nonsense. The balance between the public and private sector is a lot less in America than it is in China. But every country needs a mix of both. And I mean, on balance, my guess would be that the ideal mix is about 50-50. Because the private sector won't train your workforce, it won't save your environment. Um, it won't provide the levels of investment in infrastructure that you require. Nor would it provide a, a reasonable price, health services or care for the elderly. I mean, usually just racks up vast profits in those small areas where things like that have been done. So it's an artificial distinction, and people in the public and private sectors have, I think, the right to good quality you know, jobs with good pensions at the end of the day. Um, and we shouldn't be playing off one sector against the other. The UK in 2010 has nearly 30 million people over 16 in employment. Yet following the worst economic crisis since the 1930s, there are 2.5 million people unemployed and a third of companies plan job cuts over the next three months. The idea that once flourished in mainstream opinion between the 40s and the 70s, that the country could create full, stable employment for the populace, seems to have disappeared. And much of the rhetoric emerging from politicians seems to call for tougher sanctions on those not in work. Two of the most influential think tanks on the government's proposed employment reforms give their views on the future of the private, voluntary and public sector's ability to provide citizens with employment. Andrew Lillico from Policy Exchange and Christian Guy from the Centre for Social Justice. My name is Andrew Lillico and I'm the Chief Economist of Policy Exchange. So the private sector is of course a key source of job generation in the economy um, and if the uh, public spending cuts um, come in as a planned, then what should happen is that the economy should be able to grow a bit faster than it would do otherwise. We're unlikely to be able to grow as fast as we did over the past um, 20 years or so, because even with the public spending cuts coming in, we're going to have much higher levels of public spending than we had in the past, and at the same time we're going to have had the problems with the financial sector, which means that uh, the banks won't be able to service as much growth in the wider economy. But Nonetheless, the private sector should be able to grow faster than it would have been able to do if we'd kept the public spending high. So that means that uh, 
in the period of the public spending cuts, the private sector should be growing. Now, I'm skeptical as to whether the um, private sector job creation will be adequate to offset the public sector's job contraction. So although periods of fiscal austerity, that's spending cuts and tax rises, are very often actually associated with more rapid growth, even in the short term, they're almost always associated with relatively high levels of unemployment. And relatively high levels of unemployment can persist even well into a recovery. So quite often what happens is that in the early period after a recovery, the level of unemployment continues to rise. For example, in the early 1980s, the economy started growing again in 1981, but unemployment kept rising until 1984. So I don't think that we're out of the woods on unemployment yet by any means. The UK has already quite a vigorous uh, voluntary sector, but there should be scope for uh, a further expansion of what one might call a communitarian society. So we should be able to have more uh, expansion in the roles in society and the activities of churches and um, youth groups and community action and local people in local areas getting together to sponsor things like a local post office or a local school. Uh, and I think that, uh, that this is definitely the vision of the government, is to try to bring these things about. Personally, I think that uh, that is, if, if it were to happen, would represent uh, an absolutely enormous change in the nature of society. We'd be changing from the sort of society that we've been used to through much of the 20th century, in which the key role for many forms of public service was taken on by the state, to one that was much more of a late 18th century model, really, in which the key role for these things wasn't, did indeed belong to communitarian organizations of the sort I described, what in the late 18th century a uh, philosopher called Edmund Burke termed the little platoons. I'm not personally uh, convinced that, uh, that that's such a good thing to happen, but nonetheless, I think that if it were to be introduced, it would be a, a very radical change, uh, and much more radical, I think, than many people give it credit for. Uh, I also think that it's definitely the case that the kinds of models that we've had have failed. They've been very, very centralized, and the state has taken on far too much. So although there might be an argument for doing things kind of way that I might prefer making more use of markets and so on, the idea of making much greater use of community activity is certainly an alternative, and it also may well be an alternative that many people find uh, more palatable. So they feel that they want to have a society in which uh, people work together, and it's at least exploring whether there's an appetite, uh, worth exploring whether there's an appetite for that. And I would say that over the uh, next decade, we're um, engaged in a great social experiment on this front, and I should be very interested to see the results. I think there'll be a very challenging environment for, um, for workers who become unemployed over the next couple of years, because as I say, I expect uh, unemployment to be rising. Uh, I also think that the 2010s are liable to be rather like the 1970s in being periods of boom and bust. So I think that we, should, we may have periods of very rapid growth where people who've been unemployed get themselves back into work, but then there may be another recession and they may find that if they've not been in work very long or established themselves very well, they, next time there's a recession, they could be first out. Uh, so I think that there could well be a period of um, instability for people's lives through the 2010s. Uh, on the other hand, 
A number of people, uh, these kind of uh, volatile situations will create opportunities for a number of people to get into new kinds of um, uh, life, lifestyles and perhaps um, new life opportunities, perhaps setting up their own sort of business or um, doing some completely different sort of work uh, that, uh, that they wouldn't otherwise have uh, got into. And changing your job, although it can be um, traumatic at the time, uh, many people find that when they finally get themselves into whatever the next thing that they do is, uh, that it proves to be, um, that proves to work better than if they just stuck where they were in the first place. So although I think it, that it's, it's liable to be a challenging uh, time for people who become unemployed through public sector job cuts, uh, I think that, uh, I hope that many of them can view it as an opportunity to move on to something else. Christian Guy, Senior Policy Specialist at the Centre for Social Justice for an independent think tank established by Ian Duncan Smith. One of the key questions over the next few years is going to be where the jobs will be coming from. And there is an ambitious plan, obviously, within the private sector for that to be responsible for most of the job growth. I think, though, that another significant question that we need to be asking, and I think the government is asking it, thankfully, is about what the benefit system will look like to support the job creation in the private sector if we are serious about tackling unemployment and getting people back into work as and when they lose jobs but also the cohort of people who are already out of work and have been for a while we have to reform the benefit system to simply make work pay at the moment too often work doesn't pay and there isn't an incentive to take it because of things like marginal tax rates participation tax rates and withdrawal rates is just so overly complicated and actually punitive if you want to take on more work. Many people, in fact, to be honest, understandably, just don't make the choice to do so. So unless we're serious about making work pay for those on benefits, there simply won't be the uh, group of people ready to step into any uh, wave of job creation that comes in the private sector. The voluntary sector and its reinvigoration is also absolutely fundamental. I mean, over the last few years at the CSJ, we have travelled to many of our most deprived communities and in each of them the voluntary sector has been often a flickering light really of, of um, hope for people and it's turning lives around, it's um, tackling addiction, it's keeping families together, um, it's uh, working on getting people back into employment. And so we believe its reinvigoration is absolutely fundamental to deliver a social recovery. We need an economic recovery but there's also a need for a social recovery. Uh, and the voluntary sector is at the heart of that. Over the last decade, we would say that the voluntary sector has been slightly mistrusted, mismanaged, uh, and we need to uh, empower it to do, its, to do its job and to do the job that it does, and the state and the private sector can't do it. It has a unique role. We need to look at things like um, fairer funding, less bureaucratic funding processes, and we need to look at the way that uh, money is delivered and how commissioning processes Work. We even need to look at things like the reserves that many mega charities are sitting on and look at ways of perhaps releasing those. We've done a lot of work on that. Um, and we also need to promote volunteering in the poor areas and strengthen agreements like the compact between local authority areas and, and the voluntary sector too. So there's, uh, there is a huge amount that needs to be done. There, there are concerns um, about the lack of money and lack of funding for the voluntary sector, and they are concerns the government needs to to address an answer. But it's not just about more money, um, it's about how we use that money and how we give it out. And I think that there could be 
a significant improvement in how we're trusting the voluntary sector over the next 10 years to deliver more of what it does best. There is a um, split between volunteering and people who are actually paid by, say, large corporate charities. And you seem to put them in under the same bubble of the voluntary sector. Can you just explain a bit about the role of volunteering? They are separate points. There is a need for serious reform to the sector and how we work with charities that are paying other people. But in terms of volunteering, we believe there's a huge amount that needs to be done to promote more of it. I mean, if you look at the volunteering rates across all the age groups, they're fairly low. I mean, it's between 20 and 30% of, I think, volunteer regularly. We don't really do enough in schools to promote volunteering. Um, and I think if we are serious also about helping people into work and build CVs and help graduates and help people, the so-called needs, then we need to um, work on a sort of a voluntary culture again. The CSJ supports the aim of reducing the deficit and getting it down, and we understand that there are some extremely difficult decisions there. I, d I don't think seriously anyone believes that members of the coalition have come in wanting to deliver this sort of agenda. It's going to make them extremely unpopular, probably. So I, I don't think this is an ideological agenda, um, and uh, I think it is a reality of the sort of economic legacy that um, they find in office, but. Uh, there are real concerns that people are expressing and they're concerns that the government needs to to respond to. And um, when you're hearing things like 30% you know, cuts at local authority level or PCT level, that these are, these are real worries. And we have to make sure as far as possible that these cuts are managed in, in the fairest way. I think we're all going to feel the pinch. There's no question about that. But we do need to make sure that the more vulnerable people, the poorer people in society are not overly affected. Um, for example, older people, we know that there are going to be severe cuts at local authority level. And in terms of social care, we, we're in danger of sort of pushing more older people out on their own and having um, them to make the decisions on, on social care. So um, we, the government, we believe, needs to ask the right questions on cuts and making decisions about the cuts. And we, we just think that the government needs to, at this stage, ask questions about social outcomes look carefully at what it's cutting and making and make sure it cuts the things that don't work and protects the things that do work particularly for the most vulnerable and for the poorest i think the government has structured itself in a way that that is possible i hope with the social justice cabinet committee and a serious commitment on social reform so i just really hope that that matches its agenda for the public sector cuts and we'll be doing all we can this year to speak up for the people who may be hit hardest how can every citizen ensure that they can afford a decent quality of life? Contrary to what many politicians and commentators believe, being in work in the UK does not stop you being poor. With a minimum wage of just over £5 an hour, people across the country are unable to afford transport, food, childcare and other essentials for themselves and their families. Over the last decade, there's been a push to guarantee UK workers an income reasonable enough to keep them out of poverty, calculated in line with the cost of living. For a background to the living wage, Deborah Lippman from the trade union Unison and Rhys Moore, head of the living wage campaign at London Citizens. We started with the living wage campaign in, in 2001. Um, this was Unison as a union. I worked for Unison, big public service union, uh, with many, many low-paid workers. Uh, with London Citizens, at the time it was the East London Communities Organisation which is a broad-based community alliance. Uh, and 
the basic concept was that um, if people are earning less than they really need, uh, it has widespread impact on the, on the community. So this isn't just about focusing on poor people, as it were. It was saying this is a wide problem that affects everyone in the community, and therefore everyone has a stake in trying to do something about it. And we began by saying we wanted to uh, put pressure on employers, both public and private, to pay the living wage, and particularly where they were receiving um, any form of government subsidy that they, in a sense, owed back to the community to, to pay people properly. Um, so that that started in, in um, 2001. We won living wage in, in four health trusts, and then the campaign moved on to the fin finance sector uh, and won major improvements virtually all the banks, um, most of the big financial institutions now um, require their contractors to pay living wage um, to their to their cleaners, security guards, food services people. You know, really rapidly, we've got it in the universities, we've got it in um, local authorities now, uh, we've got it in, in a whole variety of uh, voluntary organizations, and basically it's where um, employers have recognized, often after a campaign, you know, some pressure being put on, that um, two things. One, that it's actually better for their business. So there's a real business case for paying the living wage. Turnover goes down, absenteeism goes down, the quality of the work goes up. Um, they actually, in some cases, save money rather than spending more. And two, that obviously by paying people a living wage, um, they're making their lives better and that that actually impacts wider than just even that individual workplace. So, you know, the, the health of their children is better, the, their ability to do one job instead of two jobs, to spend some time participating in their own communities is better. Um, so good employers, far-sighted employers, recognize that. So it's, it's been very successful. We've won about 25 million pounds more for low-paid people um, in, in that, you know, probably about 5,000 families lifted out of poverty in London. Uh, we have an official rate in London, the mayor pays it. Um, you know, there's a unit that uh, calculates it, pays it in London. Um, and we're beginning to get um, that spreading outside of London. There's a, a, a very strong campaign in Scotland. There's a living wage in, in Glasgow. All of that has had a really important impact, I think, on the thinking around pay that you know, paying the lowest rate is not necessarily cost-effective. And also, if you want to solve problems of poverty, by doing it simply either by welfare kind of payments or by, um, you know, topping up people that, uh, uh, you know, in, by the taxpayer paying, is not that effective. Uh, that when people get the money directly in their pay packet, it actually has a much more... Uh, direct impact on, on their ability to stay out of poverty. Given that kind of huge host of benefits we've talked about, what needs to happen for this to roll out? It seems like it's a kind of win-win scheme all round. What's, what's been preventing it? The usual kind of short-term thinking. I mean, if you just see things in cost terms and you never see them in benefit terms, then it, there's always that that argument that, well, it's going to cost more, we don't want to do it, and you know, or we can't afford it. And if you 
it, and, you know, to some extent you can understand it. One single individual business may say, this is costing me more. What will I benefit? Now, with businesses, you know, private businesses, it's, it's not that difficult to say, well, look, here are the advantages. And we have really major business allies like KPMG and PricewaterhouseCoopers that have been able to document how much they've saved, actually, and how much more better the work is. But with public employers, sometimes they say, look, we pay more. We have only this much budget. Even if there are savings on a wider level, we don't get those savings. Right? They, they go back into the treasury in a reduced um, mm. tax credit bill or something like that, but it doesn't come to us, and we only have that much. So, you know, in, in, they, they have genuine concerns about having to raise their budget. But what we've said over and over again is if we, this is why we've in a sense started to focus on the national level that if national policy understood the fact that, you know, we all save through living wage, um, it's in a sense coming out of one pocket instead of another, that we'd be able to solve those problems. So if a local authority, for example, got a slightly higher budget in order to pay living wage, that would ultimately be saved from the Treasury, possibly three times over in lower tax credits, in lower bills for health problems, for lower bills for education problems, social disorder, etc., etc., etc. Do you think then that given the difficulty of sort of short-term thinking, um, particularly around the public sector, do you think yeah. the conversation that we're having about spending cuts and really reeling back um, the state spending, is that going to yeah. present a major barrier to the, the sort of living wage campaign? Well, probably. I think it's going to have a massively negative effect altogether. I mean, it's terrifying at some level, the, the severity of these cuts at a time when people are going to need more public services rather than less, when, when public employment in some areas is a very high component of the workforce. And if you cut back 15%, 25% public sector employment, you know, you're going to have devastation. You know, it's almost impossible to... to calculate the negative impact of that. But ironically, in a way, what we've been arguing is that now it's even more important to pay living wage. I mean, it, it may sound contradictory, but if you, if you look at it, not only does the paying of living wage have a, a positive impact for that person, but people who are on low income tend to spend all their money. Um, they're not salting it away in offshore accounts. Uh, they spend it locally. So if local economies are already going to suffer from the cut in, in uh, public sector spending, um, if you also take a lot of money out of the pockets of those people who are still working, all right, if they're not able to, to meet even their basic needs, they're certainly not going to go spend their money on cups of coffee or uh, you know, even go down the full-service laundrette or whatever. And so those businesses will begin to crash. I'm Rhys Moore, and I work on the living wage campaign at London Citizens. London Citizens is an alliance of uh, just over 160 uh, civil society institutions. Uh, so that is schools and churches and mosques who come together to campaign for issues that are important to the lives of the members of those institutions. The living wage um, for members of our institutions 
has consistently been voted the number one priority. As an organisation, we hold listening campaigns. That involves our community organisers meeting one-to-one -one with community leaders um, from our membership institutions to talk about what is important in their lives, what are the struggles they're facing. Time and again, consistently, low pay is the overriding concern. And I think the reason for that is that low pay infects so many other areas of, of a person's life. Men, many of the workers that, that we work with uh, are often holding down uh, two, three jobs at a time. And of course, if you're holding down two or three jobs, it means you don't have any time for anything else. You don't have time for family life. Very importantly, you don't have any time to engage with your community. So we're very supportive of uh, the big society agenda, for instance. In turn, the coalition government has been supportive of some of the aims of the living wage campaign. One of the issues that we come up against quite frequently is that of subcontracted work. Many of the, um, the workers who uh, have benefited from the living wage campaign and, and those who continue to engage are cleaners or security staff or caterers. Uh, and um, they may spend every day working at a, a, a particular building, uh, which is the, the building of the main employer, and yet they're not, employed, they're not directly employed by that employer. I think there's some evidence to show that the trend towards subcontracting that's developed over the last 15, 20 years has made some of those, um, some of those issues worse and more difficult to deal with. It's quite difficult for a low-paid worker who is actually employed by a subcontractor to challenge the terms and conditions on which they're employed uh, and to actually engage with the real, the real employer, if you like. One of the techniques that we've developed in the campaign is, uh, is reconnecting those two pieces to say, look, there may be separate contracts of employment here. There may be a veil behind which there are different, uh, the different responsibilities from different employers. We try and lift that veil. I think one of the, the reasons for the success of the campaign to date has been the coalition approach when approaching an employer. What we do, our members are drawn from num numerous institutions, so um, somebody who is a, a cleaner at a particular bank will also worship at one of the churches who's in, who's in membership, and their children will be in a school who's in membership. And the approach we've always taken um, is to draw those different roles and relationships together um, so that you, you have a much stronger voice and you've got more power if you're not coming just from one interest group. You're coming as a genuine community. Um, you're coming as parents, as workers, uh, as consumers, uh, and as, as people who live nearby. I mean, that ge geographical uh, community. And there's some evidence from the States for this that where that approach is taken, where a community organising approach is taken on, on an issue like the living wage, you tend to get much, much quicker results in the first instance, but also those results continue. In other areas where you have a, um, a, a campaign which perhaps flares up around a particular issue, to sustain that campaign is quite difficult unless you've got that broad-based alliance sitting behind it. Something that sits behind the, the ethos of London Citizens is that we are, we are not just workers. We are, first and foremost, 
citizens in a polity. I think some of the uh, some of the work that we've been really interested in recently on the campaign is looking at the fair trade movement uh, and looking how that developed over the last 15 years or so. Uh, you now have a very strong brand, uh, the fair trade mark that we now see everywhere. It's on ev the door of every Starbucks. It's on every banana in Sainsbury's. It's uh, it's I think gets 70% brand recognition at this point. It wasn't always the case. I think what we hope to achieve with about to launch a new living wage employer mark uh, is something something similar in the UK. So looking at the way the Fair Trade Foundation had great success in raising awareness about employment practices in the developing world and in a sense making consumers care sufficiently and making it easy for them to exercise a, a, a choice in the matter. We hope to do something similar with the living wage campaign. It's very interesting that you might have a, a shopper going into a major supermarket and buying only organic food and picking out fair trade sugar and, and coffee and yet there's a cleaner in that supermarket somewhere who's being paid poverty wages in the UK. Part of our job is to, yeah, is to, is to solve that problem. In the aftermath of the economic crash, which is seen as the precursor to the UK's current employment instability, hedge funds were held by some as having exacerbated the crisis and destabilised financial markets. The UK is home to around 450 hedge funds, around 80% of the European total, and many in the industry would argue that they bring considerable investment to the country's economy. I spent a lively afternoon with Stuart MacDonald, a UK hedge fund director, who talked to me about why he thinks they were unfairly maligned following the crash, whether there'll be a growing divide between high-income and low-income workers, and his hopes and concerns for the future of work in the UK. To use hedge funds as the whipping boy for the crisis is just preposterous. It's like blaming fish for the flight of geese. The reality is that hedge funds are comparatively small compared to the enterprises that manage pools of money that go into the stock market and the bond market. The markets are in fact dominated by pension funds, insurance companies, government and quasi-government bodies that are in fact managing money on behalf, on the whole, of, dare I say, normal people. Their pensions, their insurance policies, their savings are being managed in order to preserve their capital value and on the margin enhance it by a group of institutions that are nothing to do with hedge funds. The pressures within the financial system that were manifest from 2008 onwards and in fact from a year earlier when the subprime mortgage market began to crack in the US were the result of governments and regulators allowing the regulatory framework to permit commercial banks to make lending decisions that ultimately were ill-considered. Are current conditions more divisive than before? Possibly. The interesting thing to me though is that whilst it's easy to feel that people who are at the wrong end of what is going on may end up resenting those who have access to steady employment or lucrative employment for that matter. In reality, I don't think that we're going to see fissures opening up along what the Marxists might have called class lines so much as an increasing divisiveness defined by 
unfortunately, nationality, ethnicity, culture. I think those sorts of tensions are almost a bigger thing to worry about than what actually happens in the world of work itself. Because at the end of the day, I think reasonable people want the majority of people to have access to the ability to make a living decently. I think the majority of reasonable people do not particularly care whether the person they're seeing on the other side of the room is doing better than them or worse. There are plenty of people who do, either because they're competitive or they're insecure or they're both. But no, I think the real issue going forward is going to be the fact that one of modern Britain's greatest strengths, its increasing diversity, its increasing cosmopolitanism, may end up lashing it in the face. One of the main competitive advantages of the British finance sector, concentrated mainly in London as it is, has been the fact that London has acted as a magnet for some of the most talented people working in finance in the world because of a benign set of conditions that have been created or allowed for by governments in the past. If regulators mess it up, if we tamper with a tax system in the wrong way, or we put up the shutters in terms of immigration, London will lose one of its prime competitive advantages, not just in terms of the finance sector, but across the board. To de-emphasize the city of London and the finance sector is a mistake. What we need to do is put whatever resources we can on the margin into better education, better skills. Are we facing a future with a lot of people stuck on minimum wage or part-time work? Unfortunately, yes, unless we can get our act together and develop alternatives to the types of economic activity that have sustained us so far. It's a truism that for decades we've been complaining to ourselves about the decline of manufacturing. The reality is we still have the seventh largest manufacturing base in the world. Let's play to our strengths and see what we can derive from that. We've spent the show talking about work and the consequences of unstable employment, but what about a positive view of those who choose not to work? We gave the founder of anarchist newspaper Class War, Ian Bone, the last word on the right to work. My name's Ian Bone, lifelong anarchist and troublemaker. I mean, the right to work which seems to be reviving now, as it was under Margaret Thatcher in the 80s, is entirely bogus. Um, first of all, the concept of rights itself is bogus. People have the right not to be flooded or the right to be killed by bombs dropped on us by us in Afghanistan, or people, the women in Afghanistan have the right not to be mutilated by the Taliban. But it doesn't stop it happening. So the right to work is an entirely bogus thing. Um, and what's the good about work? You know, the, the desire of any socialist anarchist should be to abolish work totally. Work is enslaving. At the gates to the, uh, the concentration camps with our backs make free, and work makes free. Most of the people who are very keen on defending the right to work have cushy white-collar jobs or they're university lecturers or they have white-collar jobs. Um, the people at the front line doing call centre jobs, doing charity fundraising, doing boring production line jobs, they're not so keen on the right to work. Entirely bogus, and the sooner we can abolish work, the better. The key thing, I think, at the present time is that a capitalist economy like in the West requires at any one particular time to have about 2 million people unemployed. It fluctuates, obviously. Um, but most for a Western capitalist economy, the 
it's about two million unemployed, or as Mark's actually actually put it, the reserve army of the unemployed. So the problem with attacking benefits grants and so on is that why not let the people who want to be unemployed be unemployed, and those people who are unhappy to be unemployed, who get stressed about redundancy or miserable and depressed because they can't get a job, they get ulcers and heart attacks, and the minute they retire, they die of a heart attack because they've got no purpose in life. I mean, why not, if you can match up those who don't want to work and are quite happy existing on benefit and are quite happy with little possessions and little money, it seems to me only, only a fair and rational system would match up so that the two million unemployed are happy and all the people who want to work have got jobs which aren't taken by sexist unemployed. So that would seem to be an entirely rational match-up, which doesn't seem to correspond with the right to work, because we seem to be told that we're all desperate to go to work, and I'm not. You know, I've, I've, I don't think most people are desperate to get up on a, a morning and, and go off to a life of wage slavery, basically. Um, and people find all sorts of inventive ways to get out of work. And you remember the, the, uh, the British Leyland car workers in the 70s who constructed entire bedrooms on the production line, hidden bedrooms where they could hide away and have a crafty kit um, during the production line. And the working class people of over the years always found ways to subvert work by sabotaging the production line, by slowing it down, by wrecking it so they get breaks. And so on, and I think that's a part of the inventive history uh, that, that we need to celebrate. Too often the old left has been caught up in images of the, the Jarrow marches and so on, the heroic campaigns of work. I've got a picture of my granddad who was an unemployed miner in the 1930s and had a contractor for filling some derelict pits at Glen back in Scotland. But he wasn't actually filling the derelict pits. He was sitting on top of the derelict pits, playing cards and dominoes with his mates, exactly the same time as the Jarrow marchers were marching, and he looked quite happy. Uh, a lot of people say to me, you know, the communists in South Wales in the 30s were a big force. There's research has shown lately that in fact, most of the people detested the communists at the workplace, and they thought they were bossy and arrogant and trying to impose their ideas on them, and they were quite happy rather going down the local miners' library reading Victorian melodramas rather than marching on capital or demanding the right to work. So to cut a long story short, I think right to work is bogus, fight for the right to shirk, uh, and enjoy a life of unlicensed pleasure, which we all get we finally abolish work, which is no blame in itself. Thank you. That's all this week. Next time we look at the issue of identity. This has been 2020 Visions. This is John Fox.